This Parshat Vayelech, um, you may have heard or you saw the text I sent, uh, Nitai Eshed's grandfather passed away today. Uh, apparently he's been sick for a while, his mother flew in, but I think, unfortunately, she didn't make it. And uh, the Leviah was this afternoon, and he's not going to be with us for Shabbos. And uh, he managed to send me his... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He sent me um, his, um, his grandfather's name, so I would like to dedicate this shear in memory of his grandfather, Lava Shalom, who I obviously didn't know, but it's a bracha to be, to, to be in Israel, to be, um, to be buried in Israel, to have a grandson who's here. The funeral already was. This afternoon, I believe, but it's a good. It's a. It's, a, it's an impressive question. Here we go. Um, his grandfather's name was Yitzchak ben Eliyahu v'Tifchazahava. Yitzchak ben Eliyahu v'Tifchazahava. So this shear and the learning will be in memory of his grandfather. So Vayelech Moshe, Moshe's last day, last day of his life. What's amazing about Moshe's life, you gotta think about this. This is always during a Sarah to Mechuvah, this, this, this parsha. Or right before Shoshana, or right before Yom Kippur. What would you do if it was your last day on earth? You now the Gemara says, Shuv Yom Echad Motecha. You should do Tshuva the day before you die. So the Gemara says, Well, how do you know it's the day before you die? The Gemara says, Ah, that's the point. Assume that this could be your last day on earth. Has anybody here ever had a day where they thought it was their last day on earth? Probably most of you have never had that experience. I've had that experience, unfortunately, a number of times. It is not a pleasant experience. The intense sadness that overcomes you is beyond description. I was in a car accident once, a longer story than for now. I was sure I was going to die. And this incredible sadness. You know, you're just like, who's going to walk your daughter down to the chuppah? She, at the time, was five years old. And she's 30, Baruch Hashem, worked out. Now, it's interesting the Rambam, based on the Gemara Paskins, that if a Navi is not in a state of Simcha, he loses his ability to be a Navi. You cannot prophesy if you're not in a state of joy. That's a discussion in and of itself, but okay. How do I know this? Am I know which Navi I, I see this clearly from? Anybody? It's in Echa. Excellent. Yirmiyahu has to write Echa before the Beis HaMikdash is destroyed. The Gemara says once the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, once the temple was destroyed, he would have been in too much pain to be able to have prophecy. So Moshe Rabbeinu knows he's going to die. He's not getting into Eretz Israel. And yet he's still giving Nevoah. That's unbelievable. And one of the, the, the Nevoah that he gives in this week's parasha, this is one of the shortest parasha in the Torah, needs a little thought. You know, 1948. In 1948, one of the most difficult battles, which we actually did not win, uh, was the battle for Latrun. Latrun, which is a, a fortress that you can kind of see as you drive on the highway to Tel Aviv. If you're driving towards Tel Aviv from Yishalayim and you come out right, right at the beginning of the coastal plain, you could see on your left there's like a tower and there's what looks like a tank on top of the tower. It's actually a little Hotchkiss, a little tiny tank from 1948. And um, the Armored Corps Museum, He's in Latrun, a powerful place to visit, I think. And the story of that battle is a very difficult battle. That, that fortress, you can see it when you're driving the highway, controls the approach to Yushalayim. It's just a strategic spot. There's been a fortress in that place 
probably since the time of Yoshua, for sure, the Crusaders had a fortress there, the Canaanim, right? And Israel understood that if it was going to break the siege in Jerusalem, it had to take that fortress. But we were hopelessly outmanned and certainly outgunned. So who was there to fight in the Battle of 1948? They basically took people off the boats, right? There were thousands upon thousands of refugees from Europe. This is three years after the Holocaust. Finally, the British had left. The coast was open. The boats started to come. Literally wading ashore or getting off at the port. And anybody who was willing to volunteer, Israel was fighting a battle for survival. And there were many Holocaust survivors who said, finally I have a chance to fight back. So they volunteered. They didn't have time to put them through an ulpan, like a Hebrew language training and military training. They gave them a rifle, they took them to a ravine, they showed them how to shoot a few bullets, and off he went to war. And many of these were the soldiers who were brought in because of the emergency situation to take the hill of Lachun. Now you gotta imagine you're an officer, and you have, I don't know, 30, 40 men in your platoon, and they speak 15 different languages. I mean, a couple of Czechs, a few Hungarians, maybe a couple of Germans, Poles, Lithuanians. How do they talk to each other? Never mind how they talk to each other. How do you talk to them? They don't understand what you want from them. They haven't been trained. They're not working as a unit. And so as they start to attack the top of the hill, these men have no idea what to do. And you scream at them, get down, but they just turn around to see what you want from them. They don't understand. They're so excited to be holding a gun, fighting against the enemy, to save Medinat Yisrael. They were mowing them down like, like, like ducks in a shooting gallery. Seven times they tried to take the hill of Lachon. Hundreds of Israeli soldiers were killed in that battle. Some of the most painful graves that you will see in Medinat Yisrael, if you go to Harut, so I'm going to take you there for Yom HaZikaron, but if you go out there and you go all the way down to the section of 48, you'll see graves that have names on them like Mickey or Henrik. They didn't know who they were. Guy shows up. He's the only survivor of his family. He, he gets drafted. He gets taken in. He volunteers. Three days later, he's fighting in a battlefield. And, you know, he tells you his name is, I don't know, everybody calls me Mickey. And then he's killed. You don't know who he is. You don't know what his last name is. He doesn't have any relatives. And so he's buried under the name Mickey. And that's it. End of the line. But there was one moment in this battle that changed... I think the state of Israel, it certainly changed the, Israel, the way the Israeli army worked forever. Nobody knows who it was. But one officer got so frustrated watching these men try to get up the hill, not being able to tell them what to do, that finally he realized there was only one thing he could do. He gets up and he just yells, Acharai. And this is a universal symbol. And when they see their officer, they knew he was their officer, running up the hill in front of them, it, 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 it challenged them, it motivated them, and as one, they rose like a unit. And this, for various reasons, became the motto, the clarion call of Israeli officers. Now, this is not a simple thing to do, right? When you go to Badechad, Badechad is the base near Mitzperamon in the desert. Every Israeli officer who goes through officer training goes through Badechad. There are different level courses. I spent four months there. Every Israeli officer goes through it. And one of the walls in that base is, 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 is engraved in stone is the word Acharai. That's sort of the mission, the raison d'etre of the Israeli officer. 
that your job is to lead. Now, this is not so simple. What's the problem with the officer leading the way? He's the first one to get shot. When we were in Lebanon, they actually changed this policy. Because, you know, the, the, the Russians, the Syrian army bases its military doctrine on the Russian doctrine. And the Russians practice a very different kind of military strategy than the West and than Israel. It's a fixed earth strategy. And among many of the other things, what this means is they would take the turret, right? We were fighting up in the Shuf Mountains, right? In Tzchalta or whatever. And um, difficult battleground. Mountain fighting is a very different type of warfare, very difficult. And very often, only one tank can bring its forces to bear because you're in a column going up a mountain, right? The guy, the guy behind can't fire. He'd be firing through the guy in front of him. So obviously, you put the one in front who's the most experienced. He's the most likely to be able to aim the gun right, get it off, get the shot off before somebody... So the Russians understood this. So they, instead of putting tanks, they took the turret off the tank of a T-62 tank, which was the most, one of the most advanced battle tanks in the Middle East at the time, right? Russian-made toy. And they put the turret like in the ground so that all it was showing was the little bit with the gun. And they had a skeleton crew. And the gun was aligned. Imagine that you know, these are winding mountain roads. So imagine that the, that the, the turret is put here and the road curves this way, and the gun is placed, it's aimed perfectly right around the bend. So that when a tank comes into view, as soon as the full tank comes into view, the Syrian gunner is ready to fire. So the only way to win is that you, as an officer, have to have your finger on the trigger, you have an override command called the Majbet, and you're constantly sort of moving the, the gun sort of with the turn in the mountain, and as soon as you see the turret of a tank, you got to fire before he can fire. Now, he's not going to fire right away because he doesn't want to just hit the corner of the tank. Because then you'll keep going and you'll take him out. He won't have a chance to reload. It's a game. And whoever shoots first wins. It's a game of nerves. Nerves of steel. It's terrifying. I used to have nightmares about this. I mean, my mom used to have nightmares about this. And they started realizing that in Lebanon, you know, usually in a company, the company commander is the one who goes in front. The captain, three bars, right? He's usually the one in front. They were losing so many company commanders and deputy company commanders that they decided it was a very difficult decision. This was hotly debated in the upper echelon of the Israeli army that from then on only lieutenants could lead. The company commanders were not allowed to be in front of the columns because we couldn't afford to keep losing company commanders. So on the one hand, it wasn't, really, it wasn't particularly a great strategy for me because I was a platoon commander at the time, so I got stuck in front. But they were, we used to debate this. Like, this is who we are. How do you let the... How, and company commanders were upset about this. That they shouldn't lead their men. So sometimes you need to lead. Sometimes maybe you need to step back. You know, if, if you're a higher commander and you're in the rear, then you can manage the strategy. And if you get killed, who's strategizing the battlefield? Now, why do I ask you this whole question? Because there's a fascinating detail in this week's question. Okay? One of probably the most painful psukim in the Torah occurs in this week's parasha. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu says, Vayom alehem ben me'avesrim shana anuchi ayom. 120 today. Since we know he lived to 120 years, that's why Chazal said this is the last day of his life. Lo chalod latzeit velavo. I can't do my thing. I can't lead you. It's interesting. What does latzeit mean? What does lavo mean? Different aspects of leadership. Sometimes leading in front. Sometimes coming along, okay. I don't get to go in with you. 
So, Pasuk Vav, Chizku V'imtsu. Be strong. Be of courage. What happens to the Jewish people is not dependent on any one leader. Right? Hashem Elokecha, Hu Ovei Lefanecha. Hashem is the one who leads us. Vayikra Moshel Yoshua. Moshe calls Yoshua. Vayomer Lev Leinei Kol Yisrael. And he says to him in front of the entire Jewish people, Chazak ve'ematz, Ki ata tavo et ha'am azeh la'aretz ha'shen shba Hashem la'votam la'tet la'em. Ve'ata tanchilena otam. Be strong, be of courage, because you are going to bring the Jewish people into Eretz Israel. Now why do you think Moshe says this, Le'inei kol Yisrael? Why does it have to be done in front of the entire Jewish people? So they trust the next leader. They trust the next leader, Yeah. Okay. Recognize that he's been made leader by Moshe Rabbeinu, by Hashem. I think it must have been a very difficult thing. The Jewish people, he's been their leader for 40 years. He took them out of Egypt. The second generation grew up. But there, there never was. There's a whole group of people in Israel today. They're just, they, they can't imagine that Bibi Netanyahu is not prime minister. That's 12 years. Moshe Rabbeinu was the leader for 40 years. Okay. You will bring the Jewish people into Eretz Israel. It's hard to imagine how difficult this must have been for Moshe Rabbeinu. First of all, his sons do not get to be leaders. Second of all, this is the day that he has to let go. Letting go is a very hard thing to do. He has to basically tell the Jewish people, I'm not going with you. And Yeshua will take over. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is that you find almost the identical Pasuk some 13 seconds later. This Pasuk is... Perak Lamed Aleph Pasuk Zayin, right? Thirty-one, verse seven. Vayikra Moshe liYoshua vayomer Lev leNekol Yisrael Chazak veEmats ki Atat Avot Ahamazel LaAretz Asher Yishba Hashem LaVotam LaTetlan. You will bring the Jewish people into this land that Hashem has promised us. Okay. A few Pesukim later, that was Pasuk uh, Pasuk Zayin, Pasuk Zayin, the seventh Pasuk. Right. You go a little further ahead, Pasuk Chav Gimel Vayetzav. Now this is a Kodesh Baruch Hu, right? You will bring the Jewish people into the land of Israel and I will be with you. Same Pasuk. Moshe Rabbeinu says, be strong. You're going to take the Jewish people in. And then Hashem says, You will bring the Jewish people in and I'll be with you. Ask me, Two obvious questions. Moshe Rabbeinu says, be strong, you're going to take them in. And then later, Akash Baruch says, be strong, you're going to take them in. Ask me two obvious questions. Yeah, Mark. Why is Hashem repeating what Moshe already said to Yeshua? Okay, so the first is, why are we in the Why is Hashem repeating what Moshe already said? Which, of course, leads you to an obvious question, which is, Josh? Yeah. I mean, what does that mean Moshe says it first? Who's telling Moshe what to say? Akash Baruch is speaking. So why is Akash Baruch speaking through Moshe and then speaking himself? Why do I need both these psukim? you have a question or an answer? Okay, I'll never mind. I might mind a little, but okay. All right. So Rashi notices this. And Rashi quotes a Gemara in Sanhedrin. And the Gemara Sanhedrin says like this. This is a Gemara in Daf Chet. Okay? And this is Rav Yochanan. 
There is one fundamental difference between these two psukim. Now I'm going to read them slowly because I was kind of being tricky, right? I'm such a tricky guy. Chazak ve'ematz ki tavo et Asher Okay, I'll read it again. Second What's the difference? Tavo and Tavi. Do you hear that? What's the difference? Why when Moshe says Atatavo and when Hashem says Atatavi? So Rav Yochanan in the Gemara, Chazal obviously noticed this. If we could notice this, Chazal noticed this. Ktiv ki Atatavo. One pasuk it says Atatavo, you're going to come. Uktiv ki Atatavi, you will bring. Which is it? Come or bring? What's the difference? I'm Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabbi Yochanan says the following. I'm Rabbi Yochanan says the following. To come is to come together. Tavo, come on in. You're not doing this on your own. Get the advice of the 70 elders. They'll help you. Okay. Rashi says, Ki tavo. You're also, you're one of the Zkenim. Right? I'm a law of So Hashem hears this and says, Tulmakel, take a stick, the Hachal Kodam, and smack him on the head. My kind of discipline. Davar Echad Ledor, the Einshne Davarin Ledor. There can be only one. Only one leader. You can't have two captains on a ship. You can't have two commanders in a unit. Two very different things. And Rashi here explains, what does this mean? Tavi, You have to act with them from a sense of power. You're a ruler now and you've got to rule. This is not a committee. We don't democratically decide. Aren't you know, that was one of the most difficult lessons for me personally to learn as an officer. You know, uh, they say Harry Truman, President of the United States after Roosevelt, end of World War II, he had, I think it was him, maybe it was Dwight Eisenhower, he had a sign on his desk that said, anybody know? The buck stops here. And I used to think about what does that sign mean, right? What that meant is that he wanted to, in my opinion, he wanted to remind himself, you have to carry this responsibility. You have to be willing to make difficult decisions. You don't always get to ask. You don't always get to debate. Sometimes you just got to make a decision. Everybody thinks something and you think they're wrong and you're a leader. If you're a leader, if you're the captain and there's an iceberg coming, you don't call a committee. You have to tell the guy to turn the wheel. Right? So which is it? Moshe Rabbeinu is making a good point. This is a big job. You're bringing the Jewish people into Eretz Israel. You have a whole Sanhedrin. You're not on your own. You lead together. Get their advice. Listen to what they have to say. Can anybody think of a king who listened to the wrong advisors, decided to do it all on his own, and made such a mess we're still suffering it from today? Which king? Yeah? Excellent. Rechava. Rechavam had two sets of advisors. He had the advisors of his father, the Altakakers, Shlomo Melech, and he had uh, youngsters, you know, the, the, his buddies who kind of stuck with him. 
And he wants to raise taxes. And the older advisor says, you're out of your mind. We just finished 30 years of building a base of Mikdash. Don't do it. People won't be able to handle it. But he doesn't listen to them. He knows better. So he raises taxes. It creates a revolt. And the next thing you know, Yeravim ben Nevat takes 10 tribes. And there you go. The Jewish people split. Because the guy doesn't know when to listen to his advisors. So Moshe's right. You got to have Canaan. That's what they're for. They're, they're Sanhedrin. But you can't say a curse Baruch was wrong. I didn't understand that. So this is Torah Tamima. Torah Tamima says like this. Torah Tamima, by the way, I think I've mentioned him to you before. Amazing parish. Highly, highly recommended. Of Baruch HaLevi Epstein. He was the son of the Aruch HaShulchan. The Aruch HaShulchan was the Posei Kador in Lithuania, which was one of the Torah centers of Jewry for hundreds of years. And he wanted to demonstrate to his father that he could learn even though he was a businessman. So he wrote the Torah Tamima. He basically collected most of the Gemaras on each Pasuk in the entire Torah. And then he wrote a parish on it. So if you're ever going somewhere and you want a good Torah in the Parsha, it's an amazing way to find a good Torah because you can pick a Pasuk, you'll have a good question, you'll quote what the Gemara or what the Medrash says, you know, very stark, right? And um, so he quotes this Gemara in Sanhedrin and he says the following. So I'll tell what I think the Torah is saying. And you could debate this. I think there's a time for both. I think you have to know when to listen. And you have to know when to lead. Does Canaan represent the idea that every human being is important and every human opinion is important? And that's, I mean, that's certainly something we believe in here in the yeshiva, you know? You may see something here and you think it's being done wrong. Tell us, maybe you're right. We don't have a copyright on knowledge. It is very rare that a year goes by that someone doesn't notice something that we could do better. Sababa, you know? Sometimes your opinion matters more than our opinion. We think we should go on a teal and you want to sit and learn. We think we're sitting and learning and you feel like, you know, you've been in quarantine, you really need a teal. Okay. If enough guys say something like that, we trust you, maybe you're right. right. Sometimes you have to listen to people. And by the way, why do you have to listen to everybody's opinion? Anybody want to take a guess? Why is it important to hear everybody's opinion? Really? Nobody has an opinion on what yet? Pardon? Really? That's interesting. I can think of instances where I listen to everybody's opinion, even though convinced that they're going to be wrong. Pardon? Nope, nope, nope. I don't think, I think that's the, that the, there's, a, there's a deeper foundation. Yeah, Margulies. I feel like Well, do you ever feel like you listen to a couple opinions and you feel like you really know the best solution? Like, you can't listen to opinions. Everybody. Imagine 80 guys here have an opinion on what time we should start Shabbos. And I get here an hour before Shabbos tomorrow and I say, okay, maybe everybody's an opinion. Well, we're going to start Shabbos two hours late if I listen to everybody's opinion. Right? I don't think that's the reason. It's an opinion, by the way, so. Right? Yeah?
Okay, I hear that. I, to me, it's much simpler. Every human being is created with Salam Elohim. Everybody. And that means that if you have an opinion, part of your return, it's the opinion of someone who's Salam Elohim. So listening to people's opinions is an opportunity to see what Hashem put in front of you. You don't always get to hear everybody's opinion, but you should want to. Right? Now the problem with that is, if you hear 30 opinions, how do you know what to do? How do you know what to do? Right? People need to feel that they're heard. There's a value to people being heard. By the way, there's a deeper idea here as well. Because Baruch Moshe, we don't have time to get into the chorus for this, but Moshe tells Yoshua, when you're up on top of your horse leading, don't forget that you're just a vehicle. It's not all about you. Right? You lead people because, because it's the people that are important. But what, what, what happens when a king gets anointed? You know what happens? Navi comes to a king, right? 12-year-old Shlomo. They walk him somewhere down there, further down to the Gichon Spring. And Natan Navi comes, and he takes him. And what does he do? Anybody know? You pardon? He takes a Karen Shemen, and he pours a drop of oil. He actually probably just drips it with his finger, but that's an interesting debate. And one drop, and you know, the Chachamim, they're there, you know. How big a drop, and how long? Is it a tefach? Is it a chatzit tefach? And the drop has to drop it. What is that about? Why does a melech, and by the way, not just a melech, who else gets anointed with, a, with, a, with Shemen? The Kohen Gadol, who else? Well, Mashiach is called Mashuach, but that's because he's a melech. Melech, head is an angel. All of Jewish leadership gets anointed with oil. You know why? Because oil is the vehicle for light, but it's not the light. And a leader in Judaism is supposed to know you're not the light. You're a vehicle to light. You're here to serve the Jewish people. It's not about you. So Moshe tells Yoshua, remember, it's not about you. You're carrying the Jewish people. It's about them. Akash Baruch comes along and says, that's definitely true. Because you're Moshe Rabbeinu. And I told you to say that because it's in the Torah. But there's another detail. And this has to come straight from Akash Baruch. And that is, there can only be one leader. A melech has to be a melech. You can't be a melech by majority opinion. Right? A melech, the system of controls that exist between a navi and a melech is a fascinating system. But as an example, how do you stop a serial killer in Judaism? Do you know? Let's say Bezrat Hashem, Mashiach comes, we elect a Sanhedrin, we build the base of and we're now running the country the way it's supposed to be run. There's a serial killer. So, in order to put a person to death in a Bezdin, in a Sanhedrin, or a Bezdin cotton, like a, a, a Bezdin Garo, which is at least 23 judges, what's the most critical piece that you need to put a person to death? Two witnesses. Those two witnesses have to actually see him do it. They have to warn him. They have to separately warn him, and he still has to do it. What are the likelihood that you're going to both see the serial killer, warn him, make sure he understands the warning. If you told him that you're going to get Skila and really it's Hereg, the whole thing doesn't count. The likelihood of that is ridiculous. That's not even the point of that, Allah. So what do you do? You got a guy, you know he's a serial killer. The detective finds him, son of Sam. That's why you have a melech. A melech can put a person to death. No Bezdin, no Aidin, no nothing. That's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. What if some melech is a superpower, a hungry, that's why you have a navi. The Navi is the conscience of the Melech, among the many other things. So our says to Yeshua, you also have to be a Melech. You have to lead. And everybody whose opinion you listen to has to understand at the end of the day, you're taking them into account 
and you make the decision. That's how the president works. The president has to be the one who makes decisions. If he can't make decisions, he's a terrible president. Right? I think, you know, first of all, lives are generally not saved by committee. You know, I'm watching this documentary on uh, September 11th. And there were people who just, you know, sort of, they didn't listen to what everybody was saying and they just ran in. And sometimes they saved people's lives and sometimes they didn't. Right? Who's the best example of a guy who's a Jewish leader who just throws caution to the wind, acts alone, and is upheld by no less than a Kosh Baruch Hu? Oh, Nachshon ben Aminadav is interesting. Um, but Nachshon ben Aminadav just has an act of Amunah. Uh, this is much more difficult. Nope, although you're close. Pinchas. Pinchas. Pinchas basically stands up. In Divrayam, in the passage of Vayamod Vayifalel, he's doing tefillah. When we get to tefillah, we'll talk about why that is. Nobody's doing anything. Moshe and Aaron, they're crying. Right? Cosby Batsur is this Midianite princess. Right? And uh, Zimri ben Salul is an Asibet Avra Shimon. He's one of the leaders of the Shimonite tribe. And they're cohabitating, which is a nice way of saying they're doing it in front of the Mishkan. He's a Nasi. He's like way up there. And nobody's doing it. The people in shock. Lubavitch Cherebi finds, I don't know, I don't know what the good example would be, Britney Spears. And he just loses it in front of the Aaron Kodesh by Harabai. What would you do? You wouldn't know what to do. Pinchas stands up, he grabs the speech. Do you understand how crazy this is? He shechs them. Can you imagine? In front of all the Lubavitch Chassidim, they're going to shech them. They think this is Mashiach. Sometimes you have to be a leader. The wisdom is to know when. The wisdom is to know the balance of when you have to listen and when you have to lead. When it's about being part of the people and when it's about leading the people. And I'll just finish by saying this, you know, you might make the mistake of thinking, okay, so if I was a leader, that'd be an issue. You know, if I get appointed to, 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 to be a congressman or maybe I run and I become the president of Hillel or Chabad on campus or whatever. It's not true. It's not true. Let me ask you a question. How many Jewish teenagers, let's just take America. How many Jewish teenagers are today between the ages of 18 and 22, college age in America? Anybody know? On college campuses today, approximately. Anybody know? What do you guess? 20,000. Pardon? 20,000. 20, wow, you're a pessimist, okay? <laughs> Jewish college students, 250,000, 260,000. There are 250,000 college age Jewish students. That's the estimate. 250,000, okay. Now, what percentage, what percentage of those college students, those Jewish college students, have actually had, I don't know, eight years of yeshiva day school, four years of yeshiva high school, 12 years of Jewish summer camp? What would you say? Out of 250,000, how many thousands? What do you think? What would you say? What number? You think there are 25,000 kids in college today, who had yeshiva high school education? Less than 20. Wow. Do you know how many yeshiva high schools there are in America, of the modern Orthodox world, that go to uh, college campuses? Anybody know? Pardon? In all of America. How many yeshiva high schools are there? So don't quote me on this number. It's about 30. Somewhere between 30 and 35. That's the number. They estimate, they estimate that there's something like maybe 13 to 14,000. 13 to 14,000. Okay, so you're talking about 5%, maybe. Of those 5%, and I'm, I'm being large, I think it's less, but let's say it's 5%. Of that 5%, what percentage of them 
actually go to spend a year learning in Eretz Yisrael, the modern Orthodox world. It's probably about 3,000. Every year there's around 1,400 boys, a little more girls, 3,000. 3,000 out of those, maybe 25,000. 20,000, okay? 3,000. Of those 3,000, in other words, there are probably about 3,000 kids who are going to secular ca- college campuses, including why is not a secular college, but in- including why you in that number, right? Of those 3,000 students, how many are going to end up having an incredibly meaningful, inspiring year and leave at the end of the year feeling a responsibility to share some of the Torah they had with people that they meet on college campus? You want to know? If you get to 300, that would blow my mind. If you get to 300, that would blow my mind. Do you understand? Do you understand what a small... 300 out of 250,000. Think about what percentage that is. You are an infinitesimal speck on the Jewish Milky Way. You are this tiny. And that means... That means... I think... I mean, you could debate this. This is up to you to think. I think it means you have an enormous responsibility. What you do with this is up to you. You have an enormous responsibility. You've been given a gift. What do you do with it? So being a leader doesn't mean that you have to join the Hillel board. It doesn't mean you have to run Friday night dinners. It means when you get back to campus, okay? When you get back to campus, guaranteed, right? Yona Diamond's going to get back to, where are you going to school? Do you know? University of Toronto. University of Toronto, okay. You're going to U of T, right? I know my lingo, right? You get University of Toronto. Some kid's going to come over and say, so, you know, where are you from? What would you do? Where did you go to high school last year? I said, oh, I didn't go to high school. I was in yeshivas. They say, what's a yeshiva? They say, oh, you know, it's a Jewish uh, school for higher learning, whatever. Where were you? I was in Jerusalem, the old city. You studied Judaism in the old city of Jerusalem. They now think you're a rabbi. You may not think you're a rabbi. They think you're a rabbi. How do I know this? Because they're going to start asking you rabbi questions. You know? You're going to walk down the campus. They're going to see you with your keep on. You know what it means to get bageled? Do you know what that means, right? You're going to get bageled all the time. Somebody's going to come over and say, I go to school in the on your kipper. And then he's walk away like, what just happened to me, right? Who is that person? You are a leader. Whether you want to be a leader or not. And the challenge will be how and when do you choose to lead. Now, if you're a leader and you never listen to anybody else, you're a terrible leader. But if you're a leader and all you do is listen to everybody else, you'll also be a terrible leader. That is the balance. Isn't that interesting? That this idea comes in Parshat Vayelech at the end of the Torah. In the portion that's about where you go, Vayelech Moshe, about the journey we're on. In the portion that's right around Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, when we're struggling to decide who are we going to be? How is the Jewish world and the world going to be a little better because we were here? That is the challenge of this idea. Atatavo, be a part of the Am. Atatavi, lead when you can. That's it. Little food for thought. I'm Pasha Vayelech. Um,